Well, good evening once again. Tonight, uh, we were going to start a series on Jonah, but I decided I'd just assign the uh, VeggieTales episode on it. They did a pretty good job, so uh, I'll figure something else. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm very excited to start this series on Jonah because it's a fantastic story. But before we begin, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Grant, O Lord, to us, your people, the Holy Spirit and the wisdom that comes down from above, so that your word may not be bound, but may have free course, being proclaimed to our joy and edification. We ask this through the mediation of the same Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen. Well, the opening line of any piece of literature is always important. It often reveals the work's themes, the main characters, perhaps, foreshadows later events, and most importantly, it draws you into the story. One of my favorite first lines is this, and if you know this one, I think Danny Miranda said he'll take you out for a nice dinner. So to anyone who guesses what this is from, here it is. Mr. Utterson, the lawyer, was a man of rugged countenance that was never lighted by a smile, cold, scanty, and embarrassed in discourse, backward in sentiment, lean, long, dusty, dreary, and yet somehow lovable. Anybody? (laughs) No, that one is from... Robert Louis Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which is an imaginative story fascinatingly told that deals with the theme of duality, which that opening line brings out right away. This man who's dusty and dreary and no good at talking, but somehow is lovable. Well, in terms of the importance of the first line of a story, things are no different with Jonah. The first line immediately reveals our main characters, Jonah and Yahweh, and the commission around which the entire plot revolves. And you may have noticed I'm using all of these literary and narrative suggestions and, and language, and that's because the book of Jonah is a story. It's in the prophetic books in our Bibles, but it doesn't really share much in common with the other prophetic books you've probably noticed. And of course, it's a true story, The events that it speaks of actually took place, but it's told artistically. We don't know who wrote the book, but we do know that he's really good at telling stories. He uses satire, irony, parody, comedy, and many other literary devices that all serve to reinforce his purpose. And again, his purpose is not to set forth a straightforward historical account. If he were trying to do that, he didn't do a very good job. Jonah and Yahweh are the only two characters named. There's no distances or anything else that you would expect to find in a history. Instead, he's telling this true story for didactic and theological purposes. In other words, he's trying to teach us something about God. And again, the events really took place. I want to make that clear. But the author is telling these events, these true events, in the form of a narrative. So let's begin tonight by looking at scenes one and two of the story of Jonah, which will take us almost all the way through chapter one, before the most famous and the most Piscean part of Jonah begins. So scene one, the prophet's resistance to Yahweh's commission. This is the word of the Lord. 
Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Again, the opening line here draws us right into the story. It lets us know a couple of things right away. We get the name of our two main characters, Jonah and Yahweh. And second, I don't know if you felt this way, but it feels like we're sort of being dropped into a story that's already being told. Jonah's the main character of this whole story. It revolves around him, but the author leaves his background totally unexplained. We know he's a prophet. We can deduce that because the word of the Lord comes to him. And we know his name and his father's name, but that's it. So we get this very brief introduction to our central character because the author wants to get right into the action and the conflict which comes as the author tells us what the word of the Lord speaks to Jonah in this particular instance. Jonah receives three simple commands. First, arise, get up, get moving. Second, go to Nineveh. Now this is where we'll pause for a few minutes. Because we need some historical background information in order to hear this as the original audience did. First, Nineveh was a a large city about 600 miles northeast of Israel. And it was the oldest great city of the Assyrian Empire. The empire which, not too long after Jonah lived, would oppress Israel. And it had been around for about a thousand years. So it was a great choice to stand in, almost representing the entire Assyrian Empire. Second, and more important, Nineveh was one of the most surprising places God could have called his prophets. First, because the prophets of Israel didn't leave Israel. They prophesied about other nations, but it was always within Israel's borders. They didn't go to foreign lands. And second, they certainly didn't go to the foreign lands of their greatest enemies, which is what Nineveh is. The mere mention of Nineveh would have made the original audience's skin crawl. So surprisingly, this is what the Lord is calling Jonah to do, to go to Nineveh. But what is he supposed to do when he gets there? That's the third command, call out against it. God wanted Jonah to express divine wrath against the great city of Nineveh. And why? Why is Jonah told to bring this condemning word? The same reason that God sent the great flood. The wickedness of the people had reached critical mass. And as the righteous judge of all the earth, the Lord must do right. He must punish evil. So the author doesn't describe the nature of Nineveh's evil here in this story. But for the original audience, he wouldn't have had to. To them, Nineveh's evil was even more infamous and well-known than that of Sodom and Gomorrah. For us, we don't, we're not familiar with the details of the things that the Ninevites did. And I can't really share those details in this setting, but to put it simply, the Ninevites committed war crimes as heinous as any that you've ever heard of. They were notoriously evil, not just in Israel, but with other nations as well. So with all of this information, we would assume that any self-respecting prophet of Israel 
with even an ounce of courage, would be excited to go and announce doom to one of Israel's greatest enemies. But that's not what we see here. Amos 3.8 asks, The Lord God has spoken. Who can do anything but prophesy? And the author of Jonah answers here in verse 3. Jonah has heard Yahweh speak, but he stays silent. And he leaves. He gets out of there. But before we start giving Jonah a hard time, we have to give him one little piece of credit. The first move he makes is right, right? God's first command was get up, and Jonah gets up, just as the Lord commanded. But that's where his obedience ends. And of course, many of God's prophets were resistant to their callings at first. Moses and Jeremiah protested because they thought of themselves as ineffective speakers, Isaiah, you'll remember, objected to being God's prophet because he said he was a man of unclean lips. But here, Jonah doesn't even argue with God. He's silent. He flat out refuses to do the Lord's bidding. He just makes a run for it. And that refusal immediately produces tension between our two main characters. And that tension is heightened because of what the author leaves out. We don't know why Jonah is disobeying. We don't know his motive. The author wants to keep us guessing in that regard. He keeps Jonah's inner world foggy until later in the story when it's revealed. In any case, Jonah runs away from Yahweh's command, headed for a place called Tarshish. And all we really know or need to know about this place is that it's really far away from Israel. It would take about a year and a half to get there, both by sea and by land. And it was the opposite direction of Nineveh. They don't know exactly where it is, but they know it's not toward Nineveh. So to get there, like I said, Jonah has to cross the sea. So he goes down to the port city of Joppa. And when he arrives, the Hebrew actually indicates he buys a whole merchant vessel for the purpose of his journey. The whole ship and its entire crew and heads out for Tarshish. He goes down into the boat and the narrator, just so we don't miss it, reiterates his intentions. Jonah is trying to escape the presence of the Lord. Now, it wouldn't be fair for us to imagine that Jonah thinks he can actually escape God's omnipresence. He knows well that that's not possible. He's a fool, but he's not that foolish. Instead, he's trying to flee God's sacramental presence. He's running away from the temple and God's holy land in an attempt to escape everything that stands for and symbolizes God's presence on earth. Essentially, he's engaging in a sort of self-exile strategy. He assumed that if he could get to Tarshish, a land so far away from the holy land of Israel and from God's temple, he wouldn't be bothered anymore by words from the Lord. He must have known what Jeremiah knew when he wrote Lamentations 2.9. The prophets of exiled Israel no longer find visions from Yahweh. So this is Jonah's strategy. He's exiling himself. But will it work? Well, the author seems to indicate that in a certain sense, he actually is distancing himself from the Lord. Did you notice Jonah's repeated downward movements? Jonah went down to Joppa, then down into the ship. In the next scene, he'll go down into the inner part of the ship, lay down to sleep, and be thrown down into the sea. The author is portraying Jonah's disobedience in terms of descent. 
First, this highlights and magnifies his disobedience because God's first command was get up. And Jonah keeps going down and down and down and down. Second, it indicates and mirrors Jonah's spiritual downfall. His physical descent matches his spiritual descent. So in other words, the narrator is showing us through his choice of language here that Jonah, the prophet fleeing from his calling, is really fleeing into the grave. Well, as we continue to be baffled by why Jonah is choosing to obey or disobey God, the narrator continues the story and the action picks up. Jonah thinks he's going with these sailors to Tarshish, far away from God's presence, but God has other plans. Now we come to scene two, which I've called Terror on the Stormy Sea. And again, brothers and sisters, this is God's holy word. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you of? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. Who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So right away at the beginning of this scene, Yahweh responds to Jonah's response in kind with silent action. The Psalms tell us that God rules the raging sea and sits enthroned above the waters, and here we see that power on display. Like a mighty warrior in the sky, Yahweh responds to his prophet's flight by flinging or hurling a great wind at the ship. And this is Yahweh's only action in the scene. But that doesn't mean he's absent from what ensues. In the rest of the scene, the author allows us to see how this one action of Yahweh providentially works out to accomplish his goal of getting his prophet off the boat and into the fish's belly. And the first event in this chain of events is the onset of a massive storm. 
It's basically Noah's flood inside out, right? In Genesis, the whole land and its inhabitants were swept away in watery chaos with the exception of one ship. But here, it's one ship that's being pummeled in chaos waters while the rest of creation goes on as normal. And the first character to react to this storm is actually the ship. The storm is so bad, the author says, the ship threatened to break up. Of course, the ship breaking shouldn't surprise us. We're talking about an 8th century BC wooden merchant ship, maybe 40 feet long. What is surprising is that the ship is thinking, right? The ship is personified and becomes a character in the story, threatening to capsize. And how ironic is this? Jonah purchased this entire ship so that he could flee from God, and now it turns against him. The ship is on God's side in this battle. The second set of characters to react are the sailors. In verse 5, the author tells us that they're scared. This is the first of four uses in Hebrew of the word fear in this scene. And for now, the sailors are simply afraid because of the massive size of the storm and because they don't know why it's storming or which God has sent this storm upon them. And I think this is also a good time to note something important. A lot of commentators will tell this story as if the sailors are simply innocent bystanders caught in the middle of this fight between God and Jonah. But we shouldn't fall for this. No matter how the story ends for them, right, if they drown in the sea, if they're spared, no matter what, we have to keep in mind that their own idolatry qualifies them as the object of God's wrath right alongside Jonah for his disobedience. And their idolatry is on display for us here. Each of them cried out to their own God. The gods they were praying to probably would have been personal, maybe family gods, sort of lower-level JV deities. And they were asking these personal, lower-level gods to intervene with them, with whichever higher-level god was sending this storm. And by the way, none of the sailors mind that they're all praying to different gods. They accept the fact that there are many gods. That's how it is. It's no big deal. One author amusingly wrote, This is clearly a diverse multicultural crew displaying vibrant religious pluralism. Fat lot of good it does them. So after their prayers don't work, right, they switch to their second strategy. They hurl the cargo overboard. And whether this is supposed to be some sort of uh, practical solution to lighten the ship and increase their chances of survival, or a religious solution trying to appease the god of the sea, these are actions of desperate men. Remember, this is a, a merchant vessel. Their cargo is basically the whole point of their trip. If they can't sell it, their trip is pointless, but they value their lives more than their cargo. So we can see in response to the mighty storm, the sailors are urgently doing everything they can think of not to drown. Meanwhile, what is Jonah's response? Well, as the storm begins, Jonah sees the, you know, the gray clouds and the lightning coming, and he decides it's a good idea to lay down and catch a nap. The way the narrator tells the story, we wouldn't be surprised if Jonah hung up a do not disturb sign on the hatch of the cargo hold. So as he sleeps in the place where the overthrown cargo used to reside, Jonah reduces himself to just that, a piece of cargo, which foreshadows what happens at the end of this scene. 
when Jonah is treated by the sailors as a piece of cargo. Well, the storm is raging on and the sailors realize they haven't prayed to the right God. Throwing the cargo overboard hasn't helped anything. So the captain decides to include in their prayer circle the one who paid them for this voyage. Keep in mind, we know that the storm is upon them because of Jonah, but no one else on the boat knows that yet. The captain is simply acting as a logical polytheist, trying to get as many gods to help them as possible. So the captain finds Jonah and yells, get up, cry out, which is interesting. Jonah is awakened to the sound of the command he's trying desperately to avoid. So ironically, Jonah's commission from God on the lips of this pagan captain haunts him still, even in the bowels of his escape vessel. But apparently Jonah the prophet, whose entire calling is to speak, stays silent still, forcing the sailors to turn to plan C, casting lots. These sailors knew that the storm was of supernatural origin, and so they seek supernatural answers. And through this means of casting lots, which we don't know exactly what the process of that looked like, but in any case, Yahweh does give them an answer. The lot lands on Jonah. He is the one to blame. So following this divine revelation, Jonah is pummeled with several short, rapid-fire questions. These sailors need answers, and they need them quick. And these questions may seem a little bit off-topic to us, but they're all different ways of asking which God sent this storm. Because in the sailors' experience, a person had many gods that they served. And these gods would be connected to different parts of their lives. They would have a god for their occupation for their family, for the land that they were from. So they ask him these questions, and to our surprise, for the first time in the story, Jonah the silent prophet speaks. First, he says he's a Hebrew, so he kind of partially identifies himself, but he still doesn't give his name, and he doesn't reveal the fact yet that he is a rebellious prophet. And next, Jonah says that he worships Yahweh, the God of heaven. Now, These words would have caused the sailors to associate this new god, Yahweh, with the power over wind and storms. So in their minds, Yahweh is kind of like Baal, the Canaanite storm god. And finally, Jonah says that Yahweh created the sea and the dry land, which is a a short, succinct way of confessing God's universal sovereignty. He created everything and he rules over it all. So the answer Jonah gives is is short and sweet and kind of like a creed. And it's definitely true, doctrine. But with everything we know about this prophet, we have to question if it was confessed in true faith. After all, he's claiming to revere, to fear, to worship the sovereign God of heaven in the midst of this dangerous storm that's been brought about by his disobedience to that very God. Nevertheless, the sailors have gotten the information they were looking for. They know the name of Yahweh, and based on what Jonah has told them about this God, they know he must be a very powerful God on the level of Baal. And as a result, their fear increases. They fear a great fear. And considering this genuine fear of the sailors, Jonah's claim in the previous verse, verse 9, to fear God, is underlined by the author as particularly ironic. He has displayed a complete lack of fear as he fled and slept 
and remained silent and didn't pray. But these sailors are displaying intense fear of God. Again, everything is the opposite of what it should be and what we would expect in this story. But in response to what they've learned, the sailors scold their thoughtless passenger. What is this that you have done? It's the same question God asked Eve after the fall. They're expressing their moral outrage for foolish behavior. And since Jonah told them what that behavior was, the sailors are are not asking for information. They know what Jonah's done. He told them. They're basically just saying, what are you thinking defying such a powerful God? And how are you so unconcerned about it? So having yelled at him a bit, the sailors now ask Jonah what they should do with him. Right? Even though they're angry with him, they probably want to throw him overboard right now. They don't know this God, Yahweh. They realize that Jonah is their only source of information about him. So they ask Jonah, how do we appease your God who has sent this storm upon us? And all, the, all this time, the sea conditions are getting worse. Now for a second time, Jonah speaks, offering the crew a solution. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. This is strange and a bit drastic. Couldn't Jonah have, you know, just thrown himself overboard? Why do the sailors have to be involved? Well, remember, literarily speaking, the author has set Jonah up as a piece of cargo. He was asleep in the cargo hold. He's been about as helpful as a piece of cargo. And now he's about to get hurled overboard just like the cargo was earlier. But theologically speaking, the sailors are involved because this is the way God often punishes or disciplines his disobedient people through Gentile nations. And that's kind of what's going on here on a smaller scale. Second, with Jonah's proposed solution, we have to ask, what is he trying to accomplish? If he just wanted the storm to stop, couldn't he have just confessed his sin to Yahweh and repented? Maybe, but the way the author tells the story This thought never even crosses Jonah's mind. So ultimately, we don't know Jonah's motivation in asking to be thrown overboard. Is he suicidal? Is he simply giving the sailors the information they were asking for? Has he been overcome with self-sacrificial love? We don't know. Again, we're at the mercy of the narrator, and this is another one of those questions that the narrator has chosen to leave unanswered for us to keep us thinking What we do know, however, is how the sailors react. They refuse to give in to Jonah's solution. Instead, they make a vain attempt to row to the shore, which, of course, will never work, because not only are they facing this raging sea, which is extremely difficult to row in on a 40-foot ship, but they're attempting to defy the God behind the storm, which, of course, is impossible. And in response to the sailors' defiant rowing, the storm gets worse. Yahweh's invisible hand cranks up the intensity dial one more time. And they're left with no other solutions. Their rowing efforts are unsuccessful. Nothing else they've tried has worked. And in their minds, the sailors are stuck in a lose-lose situation. Their lives are on the line as it is in this storm. But if they throw Jonah overboard, they might incur greater wrath from his God, Yahweh. All they can think to do is cry out desperately to this God, which is another fascinating irony because even though Jonah has spoken twice now, he still has said nothing to God. 
he has not prayed, even when the captain asked him to. But these pagan sailors, who've just been introduced to Yahweh, so to speak, are already crying out to him in prayer. And they have two requests. Number one, please don't destroy us just because this silly Hebrew got on our boat, right? It's not our fault. They're trying to set themselves up as innocent bystanders. And number two, please don't punish us for the desperate act of killing which we are about to do. The third part of their prayer is a bit more complicated because it seems good on the surface, kind of like Jonah's confession. You, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. But what they're really doing is attempting to shift the blame. Again, they think they're in a lose-lose situation. The sailors think that Yahweh has put them in a position where anything they do would be wrong. You know, any choice they have is a sinful one. So they shift the blame heavenward. They're essentially saying, Yahweh, don't be mad at us. Remember, you're the one who has brought this situation about, not us. You have done as you pleased. Right? So their hands are up in the air. They're trying to get themselves off the hook. But despite their less than stellar motives here, we see one of the major themes of this book on the lips. The total sovereignty of God. Because it's true. He really does do whatever he pleases. Finally, in spite of their hesitance, the sailors give in to Jonah's demand and do what he suggested, throwing him into the sea, which is what Yahweh had planned all along. In verse 15, we get our fourth and final hurl of the scene, which we can trace all the way back to Yahweh's initial hurling of the wind. And again, the irony here is rich, because at the beginning of the story, who were the wicked ones who deserved punishment? The Ninevites. And Jonah was supposed to go and point that out. But now Jonah's the wicked one who, through his disobedience, has been doomed to die in the turbulent waves. And as soon as he hits the surface, the sea responds. So at the very same time, the waters close over Jonah's head and the sea drags him down into its depths. Everything calms above the surface. Of course, we all know what's coming next for Jonah. It's the most famous part of the story, but that's for next week. For now, we need to get back to the boat and finish this scene with the surviving sailors. So the titular character is out of the picture, and the author ends this scene with these minor characters and their reaction to surviving this great storm, which you would think would be calm, sort of like the sea, but the author says their fear increases again. They're still afraid, if not more so than before. And in their fear, they perform these rituals to Yahweh. Now, Does the fact that they offer sacrifices and vows mean that they're converts to Yahweh's religion? Probably not. Maybe they added Yahweh to the list of gods, you know, that they keep, just in case they get into another bad situation and have to, you know, pray to any god they can think of for help. But there's not really anything in the text to suggest that they came to be believers. In fact, if they were converted, the vowing of vows would be really out of place. Because typically, when a person took a vow, they were swearing to perform certain actions for a deity in exchange for deliverance from danger. So in other words, the sailors are not convinced that the danger is over for them. 
Rather, they see, so rather than see these actions as evidence of their faith, we should see them as what the author tells us, evidence of continued and increased fear of this strange God. The storm has stopped for now, but they don't know Yahweh. They don't know how long his wrath will be satisfied. So they decide they better perform some extra acts of piety just in case. And thus ends scenes one and two of the story of Jonah. So tonight, we've been introduced to our characters. We've gotten right into the fast-paced action of the story, the intriguing conflict, and the masterful way that the author tells it. But what is there for us to learn? What can we take away from what we've heard tonight? First, there's the prominent truth that we've detected several times throughout the sovereignty of God. The wind and the sea work for him. He is their maker. And he uses his creation to insist that Jonah obey his call. Of course, we'll see that in a more extreme way next week with the fish. But even these opening scenes provide an awesome example of what Paul talks about in Romans 11.29. God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. They cannot be reversed. Second, just like the rest of scripture, Jonah 1 points us to Christ. It may have occurred to you, scene two on the stormy sea has a lot in common with Luke 8, 22 through 25 and its parallels in the other synoptics. So I'll read tonight for us Luke's account of Jesus calming the storm. One day, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat and he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they were sailing, he fell asleep. Then a fierce windstorm came down on the lake. They were being swamped and were in danger. They came and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we're going to die. Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. So they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed, asking one another, Who then is this? He commands even the winds and the waves, and they obey him. As Pastor Danny reminded us this morning, Old Testament types, which Jonah is a type of Christ, but all Old Testament types have positive and negative aspects to them. So without a doubt, Jonah is a type of Christ, but we have to sort out in which ways is that positive and in which ways is that negative. So first, comparing the scene we've just read from Luke 8 to our second scene in Jonah, there's much that is the same. Both Jonah and Jesus are awakened by frightened shipmates. Both of them calm the sea by their actions. And in both episodes, the shipmates are left in awe and wonder at the divine power that they've witnessed. But there are great differences as well. Jonah is just a man, a fallen man, who sleeps in order to escape God's will. And the sailors he's with are in danger because he's with them. Jesus, however, is more than a mere man. He's the divine son of God, and he sleeps because he's fully embraced the will of his heavenly father, and his disciples are safe because he is with them on the boat. But the comparisons we can make go beyond Luke 8. Jonah disobeyed the clear command of God, but Jesus, the greater prophet, was always pleased to obey everything that his father willed, even to the point of death. And Christ's death is where we can make even further and more profound comparisons with this story of Jonah. 
Positively, in consigning himself to the raging sea, Jonah is at his most Christ-like. The result of him giving up his life is that others live. Also like Jesus, Jonah belongs to the holy people of Israel. Yet, for the sake of a boatload of unclean Gentiles, he is thrown overboard and they're spared. In a very similar way, Jesus is sacrificed for the sins of all Gentile nations, and in his burial, he became unclean, a lifeless body given over to the grave for us. But we definitely can't say if their motives are the same. Of course, Jesus' motive was love, but from what we know of this prophet Jonah, it's doubtful that his was the same. Furthermore, Jesus gave his life for the sins of many. But Jonah couldn't possibly give his life for the sins of the sailors, even if he had wanted to. Only the God-man could make that kind of sacrifice. Finally, Jonah's sacrifice results for the sailors in worldly repentance and continuing servile fear of God. But Jesus' sacrifice results in true repentance, godly repentance, and a healthy, loving, reverent fear of God. And there, brothers and sisters, is where we come into the story. Of course we can relate to Jonah's disobedience. But really, we are the new and improved pagan sailors. We were going about our, big, our business, ignorantly lost in our sins, until one day the great prophet of God entered the scene and changed everything. And we didn't like that change. In fact, we killed him. But his death benefited us much much more than we could have possibly imagined. The chaotic waters of sin that threatened to drown us and drag us to the depths of hell were calmed by the sacrifice of this greater prophet. And now we live the life that he's made possible for us, a life without continued sacrifices and without the need for vows, for we've been delivered from all danger. The only sacrifice we offer now is what Paul says, our lives as obedient sacrifices, grateful obedience, motivated by reverence and love, not mortal fear. We walk the path of thanksgiving and praise paved for us by Jesus, the greater prophet's sacrifice. So that's how we factor into this story, brothers and sisters. And all of this great good news is ours because of God's great and true prophet, the one who is better than Jonah, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word, the word of the Lord that has come to us tonight. We thank you for your powerful grace that has taken our hard hearts and made them soft. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who works obedience in us and causes us to leave all rebellion behind. And we thank you that we are not like those sailors. We're not left in a place of dreadful fear. Instead, we have become your sons. We have been made to love you and revere you by the grace shown to us by the prophet far greater than Jonah, even your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.